2: In our new neighborhood were junkyards, legal and illegal dumps, hazardous chemical plants, and a prison. Sewage overflows contaminated the creek that our kids played in. Friends' houses contained crumbling lead paint, and many of the kids had asthma from breathing Atlanta's polluted air. There's a mentality that says about toxic threats, not in my backyard. Leroy's perspective on that was, everything is in our backyard.
1: That was Rusty Pritchard from Tear Fund USA, an international relief and community development agency. It introduces this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lines. Gabe will join us later in the show. I'm Paul Perot, and with the coronavirus shutting down many industrial facilities around the world, pollution levels in the short term have dropped. I saw a picture from India from a community that, although it should be within view of the Himalayas, could not see the vast mountain range due to pollution. That is, until recently. It makes you think that constant pollution, people breathing in that stuff. The sad truth is much of the worst pollution, not just air, but water and ground pollution, seems to happen in communities that can do the least about it, the poor. What is the Christian's responsibility for creation care? What are the justice issues concerning the poor that we should be concerned about? That's what we're going to talk about today. First up, let's go back a few years to a conversation at a Q conference led by Gabe with Mitch Hescox of the Evangelical Environmental Network and Lindsay Mosley of the American Lung Association. They talked about efforts to clean the air. But first, they talked about the political roadblock that often stops a lot of discussion around air quality.
0: So I know we're gonna talk about environment and disease, but I wanna start there because I want people in the room who are going, I don't really buy global warming um, or climate change science. If they don't believe that, is there a way to still work together to think about our
4: environment and pollution and what stewardship and creation care ought to be? The first thing we have to see is that things like climate change, like abortion, have really become a culture war. We need to get away from culture wars. We need to sit down and not talk in sound bites, but sit down and listen and speak to each other to find the things. And, and even if ultimately you don't believe as I do, you can agree that we need to help the poor.
3: And I think I'll, I'll just add quickly to that. Um, the American Lung Association is involved in working to reduce carbon pollution, a major contributor to climate change. What is not debated at all is that temperatures are rising. And what that means from a respiratory health perspective is that ozone levels are going to increase. And ozone levels are triggers for all kinds of health problems. The connection to caring for God's creation and caring for the poor who are most directly and most vulnerable uh, to these kinds of changes are places that I think that we can start to have conversations.
4: Adding on to what Lindsay said is that I think the dialogue we want to change is that creation care is a matter of life. It's biblical, and we believe this very strongly, that really has its foundation in how we care about God's earth, God's creation. So we need to stop thinking necessarily about trees and protecting them, what's important, but what are its human health impacts around the world on people? Yeah,
0: and I think that's a place where there's been a lot of progress over the last decade Mm in the church just embracing and really going back maybe to what historically. The church had understood that we are responsible to be stewards of God's creation. I mean, this goes back to Genesis 1, that this is part of our role as human beings and having dominion is that we steward it. I mean, I have children, two of which uh, suffer with respiratory challenges, and that's truly through pollution. There's a real man-made contribution to that that's happening. What are you seeing right now as the biggest issues? And when we think about American cities specifically, what are you seeing as a couple of the themes of issues, whether it's diseases, sicknesses, or certain toxins or chemicals that are really in our environment that are contributing to a lot of sicknesses and disease.
3: There About half of the population of the United States lives in areas where the air is actually dangerous to breathe. About 154 million people still live in areas where the air quality, the pollutants in the air have made that air quality unsafe to breathe according to standards that the latest science says are not strict enough, which means a lot of people are exposed to dangerous levels of air pollution and don't know it. They have a slow impact over time. Particle pollution lodges deep in your lungs. It's linked to lung cancer, heart disease. Uh, a whole host of things triggers heart attacks, um, asthma attacks. These are things that people experience. I mean, I'm sure that there's no one in this room who doesn't know someone who's had a heart attack, an asthma attack, who suffers from heart disease air pollution is a major trigger for these things. So I think that's one of the key issues that we're involved in. Obviously, the Healthy Air Campaign, we're working to get uh, strong policies. The Clean Air Act was passed um, many years ago, and we are still working to get parts of that implemented, 20 years plus delays, just simply to do what a very strong bipartisan Congress are there, law, are there so. any
0: cities that you see, uh, Lindsay, that, are continu- that, that have led the way in this, specific cities that you would say, man, if you live in that city, you're, you're, you have a better chance of breathing clean air because they've implemented such and such policy?
3: Very good question. I work primarily on on federal policy, so I look at the national landscape. But I am from uh, Tennessee, that's my home state, and I know that Chattanooga, Tennessee, has done some really innovative practices um, to clean up their air pollution in Chattanooga.
0: And what are some uh, of those practices? Over the
3: years. Well, I mean, I think part of it is. is simply how you arrange your, um, your city and how the city operates some of the standards. I mean, what they try to do is to figure out ways to meet the federal standards. So the federal standards are critically important and in driving practices to reduce air pollution. Um, some of it is you know, it's just simply how they've adopted local policies for energy efficiency and that, that kind of thing.
4: And I think that's a lot... Of what we have to talk about for us you know we've certainly spent the past year working on mercury being emitted into the air you know if you watch the thing that i did with gabe you know one in six children in the united states have elevated levels of mercury which causes brain damage lower iq heart effects could be linked to autism and other things but there also is a healthy air component of that too if you don't know mercury comes up into the air primarily from the burning of coal falls in water we eat the fish and one of the bad things and that's we know what it does in the local waters forty percent of the fresh water in the United States is polluted with mercury. But we have no idea what the Atlantic coast is because there have been really nobody's undertaken a study to look at how much mercury flows into the Atlantic. And we have a good idea because mercury travels. Heightened along with that, and we you know we think of mercury and other heavy metals, but also pesticides. If just last week a report that an analyzed data from the Centers for Disease Control, that there's been an increase in autism related things from 2008, from 2002 to 2008 of 78% of our children. In fact, along with that, as a geneticist from the University of California, Irvine said, you know, we've done all the genetic tests we can do. We don't think it's genetic. It's environmental. And so we need to figure out the ways to doing it. We put in, you know, 70,000 new chemicals have been on the market in the past 20 years, and we don't know how they work together.
0: Mm. So let's talk about mercury for a second, because that is a topic that I think you know, a lot of people are becoming more educated about. Talk about where we're at in that discussion, and a little bit of the philosophy behind... you know What, what made common sense to me was just the, the idea that what you're wanting is for companies who are putting this kind of pollution into the air to at least uh, empty their own trash, so to speak, not put it in our water, not right. put it in our
4: soil. And I'll start, Lindsey. Lindsay can add in, because it's actually Lindsay and I worked jointly together on this issue, and we have been. What happened is, real quickly, um, In 1990, the Clean Air Act was revived under the first President Bush. It was a bipartisan, overwhelming, supported issue. But it's taken 20 years for many of the things that were part of that law to begin to be implemented. And last December, the Environmental Protection Agency, who's right next door, issued a ruling on what they called the MATS rule, Mercury and Air Toxin Standard, that would take 90% of the mercury from the coal burned in coal-fired power plants. Many people fought that because they... Some people said that mercury doesn't do any damage. And we argued that it was a sort of a pro-life thing, protecting our children, one in six children. And it does have cost. You know, it will cost each of us 3 to $5 a month to take the mercury out of coal-fired power plants. But we quite honestly believe that, that that's a cup of coffee a day, not a month. And so we believe that it's worth the good of the all of saving it. And the controls exist. One of the benefits I have, I spent 12 years being in the utility industry, 20 years being a pastor, and now I do this. I used to sell the equipment that will take the mercury out of the coal. So I have first hand knowledge of that experience. And why don't you talk about the CRAs and where we're at. since
3: Well, I would just say, that, you know, so we have, um, and we being a, a community of people who've been working to try to get the Clean Air Act to be implemented, right? Really strong laws on the books, enforcement and implementation are another matter altogether. So long, hard legal battles um, over the last 20 years to get these standards put in place in a way that would really make a health difference for people and as Mitch said, that was finalized, finally finalized um, in December. And no sooner had it been finalized than uh, a, a very senior senator Uh, undertook a legislative maneuver to block it and permanently prevent EPA from implementing it. Uh, That is currently under debate in the Senate. There's a 60-day clock that's ticking in terms of when they can take action. Um, But he has 30 signatures from his colleagues and has under this particular um, provision the ability to force a vote on the Senate floor uh, on on that measure.
4: And again, I don't want to question any senator but I think there is a decision we have to make. I'm a registered, and I admit freely that I'm a registered Republican, but are any regulations good? Yeah. And I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves. I believe they are good because you know, corporations just like people sin, and you need to set standards. Without a speed, speed limit on any highway, it would be anarchy. And so people that do emit pollution of any kind need to have reasonable standards to do that. And that's how we're asking for. In fact, I testified before Congress on this issue, and, and then later I went to a Senate hearing, and Senator Alexander, who's a, a great Christian guy, a Republican, you know, he just stood up and said, you know, we as Congress did this. And we did it bipartisan ways. And I think the American people are looking us for us to continue to do this. And we've gotten on this Political diatribe to pick on regulators or pick on EPA, but let's not pick on somebody who's doing what we told him to do as Congress Mm -hmm. And I think he's just such a great statesman I get to work with lots of senators and lots of congressmen and I guess my greatest prayer for those that are in the church is to do Exactly what you're talking about here today is to find that middle ground where we could open people up To talk and present the gospel because that's what I do what I do. I I do this because I have a gift of evangelism, and I have a gift to care about the poor, and they are interconnected and determined about creation. In fact, you know, John Stott, and I brought this with me because it's my favorite little book, John Stott's Little Last Will and Testament to the Church. You know, it's one of his seven great acts of discipleship that's forgotten is caring about the creation. Hmm. We think we can destroy it, but we forget that God owns it.
0: What would you say to the church leaders, people here who um, maybe try to stay away from these conversations and topics because they might feel too political or a little bit divisive? How would you say as a pastor, speaking to other pastors, um, how, how would you recommend they talk about this? What can they do to be helpful on these kinds of topics?
4: Well, I think the first thing is it's whether, you know, talk to, to me or the sleeves who are going to be earlier, That Let's talk about some regular creation care education. Let's begin the dialogue that God says to care for his earth. Psalm 24, the whole earth and everything in it is the Lord's. Colossians chapter 1, you know, the whole earth was created for and by Jesus Christ, not for us. So start the dialogue there and begin that dialogue of seeing the impacts. And more than that, open yourself up to there. I mean, literally you can go upstairs. There's lots of people that in the past 20 years have written about creation care. And I would ask you to open your hearts up to look at it and if anything, quit listening to sound bites, whether it's on CNN or Fox News, and you know start studying.
1: Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. There was a lot more to this talk with Mitch and Lindsay on what is environmental health. If you're a Q Media subscriber, go to QIdeas.org and on the Q Media platform, search the keyword environment. You know, air pollution is not the only aspect of creation care. What about water? What about ground pollution? And why is there a correlation between areas of high toxicity and the poor? Well, Gabe is here now to help get us into our next talk. We're going to be talking about environmental justice. And how do we
0: map it? What does it look like for us to better see our cities and our communities and understand are there real lines of demarcation of those who are the poor to those who might have wealth? What are the ways in which our cities have been designed? What are the ways in which some of our most toxic environmental sites are showing up in some of the poorest neighborhoods? Is this by coincidence or was this planned? And leading this conversation in this talk today is Dr. Rusty Pritchard. Rusty's been a longtime friend of Q, all the way back at the very beginning, in fact, in 2007. He's a natural resource economist. He's a strategist and a strategic advisor for Tier Fund, an organization that's doing great work to help overcome Some of the worst effects of poverty and disasters. He's also a bird watcher. And I don't know how many of you are into bird watching. I'm seeing it's a trend that's been increasing where more and more people are taking interest in watching these little creatures and learning about them. I know myself, Rusty's been one of those guys who's helped me get involved in starting to appreciate bird watching and start keeping a life list. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go look it up. But a fun enterprise. But in fact, it was a couple years ago, Rusty, at one of our events told me he had spotted his 500th bird. So he'd finally seen his 500th species and was celebrating that because it had been many, many, many years of tracking birds. And so that's the kind of man who comes to us today who has a very intricate view of God's creation, of how things are meant to be, how they ought to be, but also has been able to recognize where we start to see that go off the rails, where we start to see human intervention Get involved in ways that can actually lead to unjust behaviors, unjust systems, ways in which we create and model and map our societies that don't always benefit every human being. And of course, at Q, we want to understand this. We want to learn about how to help every human being flourish. And sometimes that means taking a close look at our cities, at our maps, at the lines that have been drawn and why. And so. I invite you to just listen to this. If you want to watch this talk, you can go online to qideas.org. This week, it'll be on our homepage. In future weeks, just go back and search Rusty Pritchard and a talk called Mapping Environmental Justice because he's going to give a couple slides that show maps and give you a real sense of how this takes place in cities. But let's listen in now to Rusty help us better understand the subject of environmental
2: justice. The American Environmental Justice Movement was born in 1982, and it began with the largest civil rights action since Dr. King marched from Selma to Montgomery 20 years before. But it started like this. In the summer of 1978, near Raleigh, North Carolina, a guy named Buck Ward needed to get rid of some toxic waste. The EPA had just restricted the use of PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, a powerful and dangerous carcinogen that had been used to produce components for electrical utilities. Buck Ward's electrical company had a lot of it. And he ought to have paid for his stockpile to have been taken to a registered toxic waste facility, but instead, because that would have been expensive. He paid a business associate, Robert J. Burns, to make the chemicals Disappear Over many summer nights in 1978, Burns drove a tanker truck back and forth over highways in 14 North Carolina counties, slowly dripping Ward's entire inventory of PCBs, 31,000 gallons of oily poison over 240 miles of highway shoulders. The deed was discovered, Burns confessed, and he and Ward spent a little bit of time in jail. Four years later, the state of North Carolina began scraping dirt to clean up those highway shoulders, creating 6,000 truckloads of contaminated soil that needed a place to go. The place, it was decided by state leaders, would be a site in rural North Carolina, rural Warren County, one of the poorest counties in North Carolina, in a community that happened to be 80% black. Having been excluded from decisions and outlawed in the appeals, local residents laid down their own bodies on the dirt road in front of the incoming trucks. And black church leaders and civil rights leaders from around the country showed up. They marched and protested, and they won national attention. 500 people were arrested, but after six weeks, The protest fizzled and the toxins were buried in a shallow grave. But Warren County became the landmark case inspiring a movement for environmental justice, the moment when the term environmental racism was coined. And then study after study began to reveal environmental racism in facility siting. A report in 1987 showed that race was the single most important factor, more important than poverty or land prices, in determining where toxic waste facilities would be located In 1990, another study found that 43% of the people who lived within one mile of a toxic facility were people of color, not just black people, Latinos as well, people who made up only 25% of the general population. The map of environmental hazards in America is eerily similar to the map where black and Latino people live. This hits home for me. In 2000, my family moved into a mostly African-American neighborhood in central Atlanta to start a church and do neighborhood ministry with my beloved pastor, Leroy Barber, and his family. In our new neighborhood were junkyards, legal and illegal dumps, hazardous chemical plants, and a prison. Sewage overflows contaminated the creek that our kids played in. Friends' houses contained crumbling lead paint, and many of the kids had asthma from breathing Atlanta's polluted air. There's a mentality that says about toxic threats not in my backyard. Leroy's perspective on that was everything is in our backyard. I want to show you a slide that is a map of race in Atlanta. It's based on a really cool tool from the University of Virginia where each dot represents one individual from the census studies. Blue areas are majority white. Green areas are African-American. Red are Asian neighborhoods and orange Latino neighborhoods. There's not just one color line in Atlanta, but you see the historic line between white Atlanta and black Atlanta from blue in the north and green in the south. So Leroy and I used the EPA's online mapping tool to find where toxic facilities were located on this map because, well, they don't always say toxic facility on the sign in the front. So if you put that slide up, we'll show you where those tend to be located. You can see them clustered in black neighborhoods, green, But you can also see clusters at the top right in Latino neighborhoods and Asian neighborhoods where it's orange and red. Do you see the lack of dots in this map of central Atlanta in the white neighborhoods, the blue areas? Children growing up in these neighborhoods feel the disparities in their bodies and they see it with their eyes. If you believe, as Romans 1.20 seems to say, that we're to take a lesson from creation to understand what God is like, I shudder to imagine what the lesson these kids take might be in the face of these inequalities. In both of these situations, Warren County and Atlanta, the causes of environmental harms are products or services that are consumed by people far away. And the harms seem to pile up on people who don't deserve them. In that situation, we naturally want to assign blame. But the people who consume the goods whose production caused the wastes that impacted the people in our neighborhood and in Warren County, they were not enemies. They really didn't know that we existed. They didn't care whether we existed. They weren't doing anything deliberately wrong. And yet suffering in poor neighborhoods was a side effect. They might want to make it right if they knew about it, but our system prevents them from ever knowing what they had done. That seems diabolical in the technical sense. The twisting and corruption of relationships so that harm comes surely and cruelly with no conscious human malevolence seems like a work of the evil one. The dump truck drivers would tell you that they were just doing their job, as were the police. The state of North Carolina and EPA would say that they were just responding to a public health emergency. Buck Ward and Robert J. Burns, who sprayed the PCBs all over North Carolina. Racist? I don't know. Dumb as a sack of hammers? Yeah. But the amazing thing is that even after they dispersed the waste so widely, the system that we created managed to reconcentrate it and put it in black people's backyards. That is a powerful racist system. The lesson here is that you don't need individuals with malevolent racist hatred to end up with a racist result. Nothing feels more natural in a white supremacist society. Than that filth and contamination should be borne by black bodies to me that's what white supremacy means anyone in that chain of events accused of racism could plausibly deny it and yet the systemic racism continues what if we decided instead that polluting facilities were no longer able to be cited in areas that already had one what if we stopped heaping up environmental problems on the communities that can least afford to defend themselves As a thought experiment, what if we put landfills and treatment facilities where consumption is highest instead of where it's lowest? What would the world look like if we'd been distributing environmental harms fairly all these years? The map of environmental justice would be redrawn if our economy were oriented to restoration. We need restoration here at home, but we need to think too about the global economy. We're tied together with our global neighbors through trade and through a shared atmosphere and shared oceans, also with bonds of solidarity with the global church. What we do with our waste in the rich world impacts the rest of the world. And just because the diabolical world system provides us with a cover of anonymity and plausible deniability, it's not so in God's economy. God made us stewards of all creation at the beginning, and we are invited to join Jesus in the gospel work of renewing and restoring all things. We're called to cultivate and to protect creation. And if we feel like there's a tension, if we're faced with choosing between true economic prosperity and clean water and clean air for everyone, that choice means we're doing it wrong. If an economic system captures our loyalty but compromises the health of children and the ability of all communities to flourish, we're listening to the wrong master. Thank you.
0: I always love listening to people who've thought long and hard about these subjects and just help us all get a little bit smarter. I could have listened to Rusty longer. We could have looked at more maps. He really can do a deep dive into cities and locations. But I hope for now it just sparks your imagination to think a different way as you're driving through your city, through your communities, through your neighborhoods, to see the different industries that show up, to see the different places where those who maybe don't have as much influence or more of a voice are actually sometimes the ones – receiving kind of the worst benefits of living in a total proximity that's not necessarily looking out for their
1: best interest. All right. Thanks, Gabe. And thank you, too, for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. These and other talks around the issue of the environment, as well as many other topics, can be found at the Q Media platform. Learn more and subscribe at qideas.org. We'll see you next time.